Welcome back to The Hard Truth with TMJ News. I'm Zaina Bright. Today, we have a special guest joining us at the studio. Not long ago, TMJ News reported on seven top North American surgeons who traveled to Gaza on a dangerous medical mission. Adam Fahas, a trauma surgeon from Michigan, USA, is joining us here to share his story about his journey and what he witnessed there as an American surgeon going to Gazan hospitals. Welcome, Adam. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. Wa alaikum salam. So, you know, you've gone to this dangerous journey and you're back with us here safely, alhamdulillah. But let's talk a bit about your journey before, you know, leading up to all this. You know, you're a trauma surgeon, you're a father of three children. What were you feeling as you'd seen these scenes unfold since October 7th on social media, on mainstream media? How were you feeling as a trauma surgeon witnessing all of these injuries and, and you know, what was unfolding in Gaza? Yeah, it's terrible what's happening to the Palestinian people. They're suffering. Um, I mean, even... From what I witness, it's beyond what you would imagine, you know, before going there. Uh, it's hard for us to really understand or imagine what they're going through because we've never been through something like this ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. we all we're, we're, we're lucky that we live here in the States and that we're protected and we're safe. And so we don't even we can't we can't even think about the things that they're dealing with. You know, the sanitation issues, the fear, the terror, all that stuff. And so. Leading up to this, you know, you're constantly on your phone checking for updates, seeing what's happening, and your heart is just torn apart by, by like the terror that you're witnessing. And you want to help, you want to do what you can. And I feel like we try to give money, you don't know how money's going to get there, and and every part of you is just itching to do something to help the Palestinian people. And uh, so when I had the opportunity, I knew that I had to go. And so. At this time, were you feeling like, you know, you can give something to these people? Did you feel like you could help them? I, I'll be honest. I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that um, I had the opportunity to go and I couldn't say no. I had put my name in a bunch of different WhatsApp groups for doctors willing to help. Mm -hmm. And someone just out of the blue sent me a message saying, we're leaving in a week and a half or so. If you can get all this paperwork done, if you can get your stuff ready, we're looking for a trauma surgeon to join us. And uh, just the way the timing of, of events and the sequence of things, I, I knew that this was something that I, that I had to do. So, so now you're getting your paperwork in order. What's going through your mind? You're probably, you know, are you consulting your family, your wife at this point? I had to tell my wife for sure. Uh, I actually didn't want to tell anyone else that, that I was going. I wanted to keep my intentions as secure as possible. I knew that if I was going to go, um, people were either going to praise me or try to talk me out of it. And, um, and again, I just, I wanted my intentions to be pure. I wanted to go for the sake of God to the help the Gazan people and do what I could, even if it was cleaning something, you know, mm -hmm. if, if I could go just to offer some assistance, just to alleviate any little bit of pain, struggle, difficulty, I felt like that was a gift from God that I would be able to, to, to do that. So there's a lot of uncertainty and, you know, we were having Zoom meetings leading up to it. And the leader of the group was saying, 
I can't make promises like these are the dates we're expecting to go and come back. We can't guarantee. We don't know what's going to happen at the border. We don't know what's going to happen at the checkpoints. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, at this point, you don't know what's no going to happen. Yeah. You put your, your paperwork in order. You tell your wife. And then what happens? Yeah. So I guess the bigger story of my like willingness to go is um, I had his Yada trip planned for like six months mm -hmm. with my son and I. And so this, we had set it up in the summertime. So to Iraq, to Iraq. Okay. Yeah. So I had time scheduled off of work. I had canceled my clinics. Everything was set up at work for me to be gone for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And when this opportunity kind of fell in my lap, I felt that this was like a test from God saying, mm -hmm. you know, you've been talking a lot that you wanted to do things and you want to mm -hmm. help. And so here's your opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I immediately said yes to it. I mm. felt like, um, I felt like it was meant to be, mm. you know, so. And so, and then they tell you that, okay, now, you know, we were able to go come meet us in Egypt. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, it was, um, the day of arrival was set. So, okay. um, we all knew that we had to meet in Egypt on a certain day and, you know, we'd all meet at the hotel and then we'd get on a bus and, and we'd drive through Egypt and, uh, and the desert to get to the Rafah border. Okay. Uh, but everything coming back was kind of up in the air, you know, as far as like tickets mm. coming back, they like expect some, you know, potential changes, mm -hmm. you know, they they said that they would help us out with the tickets, but they're like, don't, you know. We can't guarantee that anyone can come back at a certain mm. day. So, and so did you discuss all this with your wife? Kind of, <laughs> you know, okay. um, so some things were left unsaid. <laughs> I think, uh, she, she knew what she had to, mm. you know, I didn't want to burden her with, with more just fear and unknowns ahead of time, mm -hmm. trying to go with as much confidence as possible mm. when on the inside, I had no idea what to mm. expect, you know? But I had to at least put up that front. So because she, I mean, she's got three kids at home, you know, three kids below six. That's plenty to deal with. So, okay. yeah. Did you, so now this time when you yourself didn't know if you were going to come back, did you ever feel this fear, this, you know, like, you know, I'm leaving my three children. Did you feel that way? Yeah, it was um, like I, I was emotionally torn, like two halves of me. One half of me knew I wasn't coming back. And uh, the other half of me knew that I was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, with the timing, with the Ziada trip planned and stuff, I just felt like I would just leave it in God's hands to decide. And I had this very weird, I've never like experienced this in my life before. I've never really had these like, I don't want to call it near death, but potential death experiences. Mm -hmm. I was at, I was at peace with both potential options. And um, I remember before leaving to the airport you know my wife drove me to the airport and right before i left you know i'm sitting on the stairs and i'm taking pictures with each of my kids one at a time and uh, i take a picture with my wife mm -hmm. and the whole time going through my head it's like oh well these must be the pictures they're gonna put at my funeral or something mm -hmm. you know and wow. um like I'm choking up thinking about it now, but at the time, like I said, I was so at peace with the decision mm. leading up to it. Every, every salah, every dua, I would just ask Allah, like, give me what's, give me what's best, whether not, it's martyrdom, not yeah, it back, just give, give me, me what's, what's best. best, whether it's martyrdom or returning back safely. And I was, I was going to leave it in Allah's hands. And mm. so, and were you ever worried about your career at this point and coming back to the hospital that you work for? Mm. 
No, that never. So you go through something like this, everything like the week, the few days before this, I started to like realize that there's so much in life that doesn't matter. When there's the potential of losing everything, you just realize that there are so many things we focus on that really don't mean much in the grand scheme of things, mm. you know, like little things that bother you don't make a difference. You know, um, I don't know, even my career at the time, it was like, well, I'll just figure it out when I come back. Mm. You know, I, I, I did tell my partners right before I left that I was going just so that they were aware, like, hey, if I die, you guys got to find a new partner. Like, wow. <laughs> so, so you made preparations. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, my, I mean, my will back. was ready. Wow. And um, I told my partners right before I left, my wife convinced me to like tell my family and everyone like, you know, in case you don't come back, you should have your final goodbyes and stuff. And did you do that? Through a voice note. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm a surgeon. I'm bad with like emotions and stuff. That's and, <laughs> and, and do you feel that you were able to come to this place because, you know, you see death so much? in your workplace do you feel that that helped you in in getting to where you are so i don't see death a lot in my in my like practice so i see i definitely see people that are severely injured and traumatized um i've definitely experienced death in my family over the years mm -hmm. and i don't want to say it's made me callous to it but it's definitely it's been an experience that i'm not unfamiliar with but i mean regardless of all that i think it was all just just tranquility from Allah as, as a blessing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that, that I could go um, and just ready to take on whatever the mission brought our way. Now let's get to Egypt. So you're at Rafa, you saw a photo of you sitting with a group of doctors. Yeah. Um, tell me about that time, you know, what happened once you got there and you met everyone um, and you were preparing to go into Gaza. Yeah, uh, that picture that they posted, that was that was the first time I met everyone. Uh, they, some of the people, some of the guys already knew each other from previous mission trips and whatnot, mm -hmm. but that was the first time I met everyone. And um, I remember the um, VP of Rahma, his name is Adib, he was there. And he basically kind of gives us these forms of uh, basically like relief, medical release forms or, or whatever. Right. And... Uh, I just, I didn't even read it. I was just like signed it and I gave it back to him. Mm. And uh, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, it's like martyrdom is the greatest position. Like whatever's wow. best. I just signed it. I gave it. I don't even know what it said. It was, I mean, it wasn't even long. It was just like a few lines, but I'm just mm. like, I've made up my mind. Nothing's going to change it. And so, so yeah, I mean, we met at the hotel. Everyone's getting to know each other and stuff. And, um, plan is to leave the next morning early in the morning because there's a lot of checkpoints. oh so it was that close you met everyone and the plan was yeah wow. yeah we landed at like 10 11 p.m had a quick dinner and so then... these were the people you were gonna travel yeah. with you just met yeah. the same day okay yeah. and um checkpoints all over egypt it was, mm -hmm. it was it was it was terrible every single checkpoint it's like the same routine hand us all the passports ask us all wow. these questions we're like begging with them, like, please call ahead, let them know, let the next checkpoint know we're coming. You guys know we're headed in this direction. Mm. No, sorry, we can't help you. Like, be on really? your way. Yeah. One checkpoint held us for like four and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. Waiting for a call back from someone to call someone else. So all of this was being handled by Egypt themselves. Yeah. For you to get yes. in. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it was it was disappointing emotionally. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of politics and whatever. Um, I don't really understand or know, but it it was it was hard emotionally to live through the experience of you wanting to go help. Mm. I don't want to say your people because we're all one, but like as a Arab, I'm going to help Arab, and the Arab in Egypt are like making it harder on us to go, mm. and. Um, you would think that like something would be set up in place to help us or people would, you know, at least the army or people. Yeah, it was just constant roadblocks. Wow. They held us up so bad that when we finally got to the border, the border is like, no, we're shut down for the night. Wow. Go back into Egypt. All that. Come back. Mm. Yeah. And then was... you went back. We went back. Wow. Yeah. We didn't go back. All... I mean, you, you go all back. It's like a 45 minute drive, hour drive. Okay. Uh, I find some random hotel to sleep in and then... You do it again the next day. And this time, did anyone drop out of this? No, 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 no. They all, no. they're all. No, we're all ready dedicated. Yeah, we're all dedicated. Okay. I mean, we made it this far to Egypt, and you know, you're so close to the border. And but. so the next day, you you did you tried again. Next day we tried again. So when we got to the border that night, we told the border patrol guy like we want to be the first people in. Like mm -hmm. we're willing to get here as early as possible to get us in. And he's like, "All right, yeah, come at like ten, eleven a.m." Wow. We're like ten, eleven a.m. Like we want to help people. We want to get in. He's mm -hmm. like, "Yeah, that's when we open." Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, we get there. I mean, we hit a few checkpoints again on the way. Same problems as the first day. Nothing changed. And then. You go through the Egypt side of the border, you go through the Palestinian side of the border, and then you just witness everything. Wow. Yeah. So now, as an American citizen, were you treated differently while at the border? Was your passage easier? Um, I don't... Well, they treated us well. I can't, I can't, I can't say anything bad about the way they treated us. Mm -hmm. So they put us in a, in a nice room and, you know, they, they... they they gave us like coffee, tea, water, sweets, whatever, while we were waiting. So, mm -hmm. I mean, they just put you in a room for like an hour or two. You don't really know what's happening. You just give them your passports and they're mm -hmm. like, all right, we'll call you when things are ready. And then you got in. And then and we got then in. the journey began. Yeah. Yeah. The so, real part of the journey started. There. How are you feeling at this time while you're waiting? You know, you're getting in soon. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're anxious. You want to get in. You want to do something. You want to help. You're nervous. You're scared. You don't know what to expect. Mm. Um, Did you recite any duas at this time? Yeah, I mean, the whole time I got the masbaha in my hand. Mm. Um, someone had gifted me a masbaha. A family member, sorry, had gifted me a masbaha. So the whole time I'm, I'm doing it. There's Quran constantly playing on the phone. Uh, death brings you so close to God, and mm. in, in a way that no other experience can. It just reminds you how finite we are, how limited we are, how mm. dependent we are. Mm. And I remember as soon as we crossed the border, I like made sure my shoes were knotted twice, just in case, wow. <laughs> just in case, God forbid, something happens. Mm. Um, yeah. And so now you've entered Gaza. What happens then? The first thing I remember seeing when we entered Gaza was a bunch of kids like a swarm of kids running across the street through the street running across like going into a field and uh i asked the driver i'm like what is this why are all these kids running hmm. and he points in the distance and you see like a humanitarian aid truck or a food truck water oh, something really? like that yeah they were going to the food they were going to whatever the supplies were there at the time and uh as a parent the first thing you think about is like you, you see these little kids and you think about your own kids mm. and you start think I started thinking to myself like 
like I'm so lucky. My kids are so lucky. They have security. They have peace mm -hmm. at home. You know, we have a faucet with unlimited water. We mm -hmm. have food in the fridge in the closet. And you see these poor kids running to a truck. And mm -hmm. I don't think they even knew what was on the truck. But I think when you're that desperate and you don't have anything, you're just going to run to anything that can potentially mm -hmm. help you. That was the very first thing I remember seeing when we crossed the border. And then what happened? And then, we, so we drove straight to uh, the hospital. Okay. That's really the only, we spent our time in between European Gaza and we spent a, a night at Nasser Hospital, but we never left the hospital. It was just going there, driving back and forth between the two and that was it. And so driving to European, you're seeing the destruction. There's not too much shelling going down, mm -hmm. but you could definitely see like when you look off that some buildings are, every, every once in a while you'll see a random building or mm -hmm. you'll see... You'll see, I remember we were driving and you see this big puff of black smoke, huge black cloud. Wow. And I guess the people are just so used to it and callous to it. They're like, oh yeah, well, there's another airstrike you can see. And they're like talking about the smoke. They're like, you could tell this is a fresh hit. Like, by the way, this, this, and this looks, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's crazy that they've seen it that much that they're so, they're just, they're numb, just to they're numb to it. Wow. And, and you uh, are probably horrified. Yeah. This is your first time yeah. witnessing something. Yeah. Um, seeing the amount of people just flooded in the streets. There's people, like, it's hard for even cars to drive through the streets just because of how many people there are. There's not that many cars on the road. Mm. Gas is so expensive. Not many people can afford it. And to be honest, no one's got money, too. It's not like... It's not and, like the um, banks are open. It's everyone's like, on the road because of no shelter? No, there's nowhere else to go. I mean, the really? roads... The roads turn into like a makeshift marketplace you know if someone anyone who's got some goods to sell or anything like that just kind of has like a little box in front of them and mm. you know they're trying to sell whatever but it's it's just the amount of people that are packed into such a small area because everyone from the north has been pushed down south mm -hmm. so you just have all these people everyone you know everyone's really homeless as everyone's living in tents you drive and you just see tents made out of like medical grade plastic or some kind of like wrapping but you know what they wrap semi trucks in or something mm. like that people just kind of like pin it to a tree or somehow find a way to hang it on a wall and you have families living in this stuff mm. and just the you, you see homeless people around but just the fact that it was like an entire city's worth of people mm. was so shocking to see so what did you witness at the hospital what were your days like hmm. Days were just in the OR basically all day. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was very hard, um, just from like a logistics and coordination standpoint, was how unreliable cell phone service was. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know who controls the cell phone service and if they knock it out at certain parts of the day or whatever, but trying to run a hospital with no cell phone service is mm -hmm. near impossible. You're trying to coordinate with people like, hey, who should meet where? And if all you have is landlines, then you have stuck you have people stuck to a phone, then they can't move. Mm. And if someone needs to move, if you does if you decide like, hey, let's meet here at this time and someone ran into an emergency or someone had to go do this. Now you're stuck here and you're thinking, Okay, do I go look for them? Do I wait here? Maybe they're a few minutes late. And so all these like little delays just stack up throughout the day and it just creates these tremendous inefficiencies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big, big inefficiencies. And when you're in a wartime situation like this and you have a lot of people that need care, these inefficiencies, like they could cause major problems, mm -hmm. you know, tremendous effect, detriment to patient care. Now, 
at this time, did they know that you were like an outsider? Are you you're from the states? Could they pick up? Even though oh, right speak away. Arabic, really? Right away, yeah. I mean, my Arabic isn't isn't that great. I can hold a conversation, but right away, people could tell that. Even from my dad, they knew that I was Lebanese, mm. you know. And so, um, plus, I mean, we look different. Like, I mean, it's it's bad to say, but just the fact that we had clean clothes on, you feel awkward walking around. Wow. You just feel so out of place having a clean pair of clothes on, you know. Sorry. And granted, I was wearing two pairs of scrubs for seven days straight. Mm. But, I don't know, it just, yeah, you, you stick out like a sore thumb. So... Describe to me your role in the hospital. What were you doing and what were you seeing in terms of surgeries? So we primarily spent our time just in the ORs. We would occasionally go down the ER to help whenever there was a mass casualty event. We would go down just to help with triage patients and getting people moving who they stratify the higher acuity stuff versus other stuff that can maybe wait a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. but mostly in the OR. Um, and, uh, like I said, I didn't really know what to expect when I was there. I didn't know if I would just be taking over, if I would just be, be there to help. So I went there with just an open mind and willing to do whatever. And Mm so I, every surgeon I met, I just told them, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm from the States. I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon. Anything I can do to help, let me know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, because all the other hospitals in Gaza have been destroyed for the most part. So there are. 15 or so hospitals before the before the recent war that started there were 15 functioning now there's only two functioning hospitals in all of gaza the rest of them are either non-functioning or partially functioning whatever that means right so wow uh, they can't really provide high level care to patients so because all these other hospitals are shut down all the doctors are now displaced south Mm -hmm. so at least with orthopedics, thankfully, there were there were plenty of doctors there uh, to, to be able to take care of patients. Mm-hmm. Now, in Gaza, is a little different because there's not really fellowships and stuff like there is here, right? So I found that, you know, speaking with some of the more senior guys that have done mission trips in the past, they, they kind of taught me that my job in this trip is more to be in the assistive role. Mm-hmm. So helping the, helping the local team come up with plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm trying to figure out, you know, who needs surgery when, do we need to prioritize certain people? Uh, there was a there was a fantastic team of surgeons from the UK. They're, the group is called Ideals. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing people. And um, they have kind of like a logistics and team of their own. And so thankfully under their guidance, they were able to find a lot of patients who unfortunately had missed injuries. Mm-hmm. Patients that have been dealing with infections on the floor that's, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't caught. Wow. I think people that, the, the thing that people don't understand that live in the States or other well-developed countries is the hospital there isn't like what you see here. It's not what we know here. Mm-hmm. So first of all, the hospitals are relatively small. The, the biggest one I saw was four stories. I mean, that's nothing compared to if it wasn't for the big sign in the front you would drive by and miss it so the hospital is very very small the hospital is absolutely overwhelmed mm-hmm. there is a massive massive humanitarian crisis in gaza mm-hmm. just around european gaza hospital there are twenty thousand people living in and around the hospital on the hospital grounds that's an absurd amount of people to be in one area mm-hmm. so think about the infection risk the sanitation problems all that stuff when you have that many people in the hospital 
it's not like every patient gets a room and every patient has a chart that says in the computer, oh, this patient's in this room. Mm -hmm. You literally have people lining the hallways. Mm -hmm. I have pictures where you have four patients stacked side by side in hospital beds in the hallways. Wow. When it gets to that level, you can't keep uh, electronic records of where people are. Mm. It's like I said, it's not just numbers. Now you have people just in the hallways. You have people in corners. You have entire families that have built a small living area for themselves, probably as big as this couch, mm. just by dropping sheets from like the, the drop ceiling mm. and creating a little bit of privacy for themselves. Mm. So when you have a hospital system that's depleted from resources, because 90 days now it's been an absolute strict blockade, they can barely get anything mm. in. When you have depleted resources and overwhelmed with with the number of patients, mm. it's bound to happen that you're going to miss some things. Mm. Mm. A patient's chart could get lost or misplaced or something like that. If they don't have anyone to advocate for them, they're stuck, you know. Did so, you feel like, you know, coming from the West and having a very organized approach, was this very difficult for you to see how was this the, was operating? It's emotionally you're like dying inside because you just want structure we're so used mm -hmm. to structure and coordination and ease but again none, none of us have ever been in a mass casualty situation mm -hmm. to this extent you know like yeah sometimes in your career there's like oh yeah five car accidents came in all at once or something like that mm -hmm. but it's not to the point where the hospital's overwhelmed mm -hmm. it's not to the point where the hospital no longer has clean supplies mm -hmm. it's you know or people are living on the corridors yeah yeah. So, you know, if the situation was so chaotic, did it feel like like you guys were too many cooks in a kitchen or, or were you needed? At least from orthopedics, I, I think the, under the guidance of the senior guys, learning to just play my role, I think really helped me mm -hmm. to not overwhelm or burden other people or get in the way and do stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was available all the time. I would show up to the OR and I would just tell them, I'm here to help you. Now, if they wanted me to do a case, I would help them with the case. If they wanted me to be an assistant and hold a retractor, I would do that. If it was, you know, taking care of certain patients, doing, I just, I just wanted to be there to help and do as much as I could. And were your methods or what you've learned here and apply here different from what they were doing there? Big time. And I think the, the, the main reason for that is just because they don't have access to the things that we do. Mm -hmm. I keep saying this, but we're so spoiled here. We have everything we want and need, and it still never feels like it's enough. And you're mm -hmm. always looking for something better. Well, I can only speak for orthopedics because that's really the only the main surgeries that I saw. From an orthopedic standpoint, the level of healthcare in Gaza is something we would consider here to be unacceptable mm. because they don't even have the proper orthopedic equipment to really take care of patients. Mm -hmm. So for example, if someone has a badly broken leg, the, the standard of care here in the States is we put a rod inside the bone and it holds everything together. Mm. It's nice because everything is inside the body. You don't have anything sticking out, lower risk of infection. It's for the most part, people can walk on their leg and rehab and do all this stuff. Mm because they don't have anything there they have the lowest level quality and quantity of orthopedic implants so they would just basically put pins in someone's leg and connect them to a bar and that's the definitive treatment wow. again here that's unacceptable we would never do something like that mm. but over there that's 
that's all they that's have. What they have. But mm. there's not there's not companies or reps of companies bringing implants in. Orthopedics is a very implant dependent field, mm. and so if no one is bringing you new stuff, you either have to reuse old stuff, which mm. is not ideal, or you just just run out of it. Mm. And it got to the point where they were running out of things. Wow. And so you know, what was the worst case you saw while there? The worst case I saw was the first case I saw. It was a 12-year-old girl. Um, she had a massive kind of shrapnel explosion injury to her to her thigh. <laughs> and um, it was complicated by a really, really severe infection. And when I first got there, um, that, that was the first case that I took care of. You know, they, they, I was in the room where we were cleaning the dirty wounds and stuff. And um, the poor girl ended up losing her entire leg over this. Wow. Because... Does that to amputate? Amputate, yeah. Really? Up, yeah, up near the hip. And part of that, obviously, is due to the fact that there's just no implants there to take care of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Even if I was here in the States and I had everything at my, at my uh, disposal, it would still require, like, a year at least of surgery to mm -hmm. be able to, to take care of her leg. But over there, you just you just don't have that. Even things that we take for granted, just clean areas, sanitation, clean dressings to like take care of stuff. A lot of that stuff is missing there. Another devastating case I saw there was um, a gentleman had unfortunately lost both of his legs from an explosion and he underwent amputations on both sides. But because of the lack of sanitary living spaces, uh, clean uh, gauze pads, basic antibiotics, um, he ended up with maggots in both of his legs. Really? Yeah. And um, again, this is stuff that we just find absolutely unacceptable here, you know. Mm. But over there, they, they they just don't have anything to work with. Did it make you feel frustrated that you know you're you we have all these things here? If they if they could just yeah yeah you know? I, that's the thing that I was talking earlier about like the emotionally feeling mad at the Egyptians for not allowing us to get through the checkpoints and stuff. Mm -hmm. And again, it's all politics with whatever Egypt and Israel and America have coordinated. But the border, the Rafah border, is technically a border between Egypt and, and Palestine and Gaza, mm -hmm. you know. But it's controlled by whoever. And I have a video of it. Normally, what the locals told us is before the war started, 300 semi-trucks a day were able to come in to bring goods into Gaza. Mm. Now, since October 7th, it's been dropped down to like 60 or 70 trucks. Wow. So that's like a third of the amount when of When they actually there. need it more. Yes. So mm. when you're driving to the Rafah border, it's no exaggeration. It's miles of parked semi-trucks. Everyone is just waiting to get into Gaza to mm. deliver whatever it is they need to deliver. And if it's food, it's probably rotted by now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, tell me what your nights were like. Did you hear the strikes? Did you hear anything in the background? Yeah. The nights the nights were really bad. I don't think we got, you know, a good, a single good night's sleep when we were there. During the day, you probably hear bombing maybe like once an hour, once every couple hours, you'll hear bombing go off. During the nighttime, it was constant bombing, continuous bombing all night long. Starts at like nine or 10 o'clock at night and the entire night you're waking up to bombs. And it's very loud. I don't know how far away they were bombing mm -hmm. or 
yeah, I don't know how far it was, but you could you could hear the bombs, you could feel the explosions. The wow. room would shake, the door would rattle and 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 the frame, your bed frame would shake, it would wake you up at night. It was constant bombing all night long. You could hear the jets flying over. You hear like the and then it fades away and then you hear the bombing go off after. And did you think you could be bombed? Yeah. I mean, it's uh part of you thinks don't worry you're in a hospital you're safe nothing bad's going to happen but then you think to yourself like well yeah they've bombed hospitals before this this isn't going to be yeah, there's you know, only the first two left there's now. only two left you mm. know there's always that element of human error what if someone pushes the wrong button at the wrong time mm. yeah it was it was very loud we couldn't sleep and you know the locals would like make fun of us cuz we'd choke the next morning and we're yawning and we're tired mm. and they'd be like so well you guys couldn't sleep last night the bombs keep you guys up wow. yeah it was and uh you know they would they would joke and you know oh yeah we need the bombs they put us to sleep at night they mm. help us sleep but um yeah all I've night long I'm getting so used to that like yes Yes. The mm. drones too. I never really thought about this. The ones that this. hum? It is so yeah. loud. It is so loud. Mm. It's like even when you're having a conversation with someone, it's like loud where where you can hear it. Wow. Constantly, constantly drones all night long and bombing. I'm sure that psychologically affects oh, for sure. especially children like hearing that 24/7. Yeah. And I mean, I was inside a hospital and I could hear and feel and all this stuff. I mean, I can't even imagine for the people that were sleeping outside. Mm. Again, the majority of people are just outside in plastic tents. How many days were you there? So it ended up being because we lost the first day when we got stuck at the border. So it was like six days, seven days mm. of, of uh, actually being in Gaza. So night after night, you're not getting good night sleep. You know, you're thinking maybe I won't make it out of here. Yeah. Um, as the days come close to an end, well, for your journey there, what what's going through your mind here? Do you feel like you had achieved something or do you feel guilty that yeah know? yeah i mean definitely a little bit of both it, it was it's a very bittersweet feeling leaving gaza of course you're excited to be able to get back to your family um all the things we take for granted you know your comfortable bed the fact that we no there's no pillows right so you're just sleeping on your arm mm-hmm. there's no toilet paper in gaza mm-hmm. um we didn't shower for the wow. yeah For a all, whole week? Yeah. Mm. I mean, thankfully, my wife packed me some wet wipes, so I was just kind of wiping myself down. Mm. But, I mean, it's a harsh reality. A majority of the people there shower in the bathroom. They use the bidet hose as a shower. It's it's a, it's a humiliating way to live. So, you know, you're you're taking these wipe-down sho- wipe showers. You're hearing these bombs. You're not getting good sleep. Are you eating at all and what are you what what was your diet like? Uh not we didn't eat much. Um we all all the the whole group that went were all married men so thankfully our wives thought ahead for us so everyone kind of came with a pack of like cliff bars or power bars. And so you would just basically have a bar in the morning and you wouldn't eat until nighttime till we got back to the room. Um and uh there was a a family You feel guilty. I mean, I feel guilty about it now, but there was like a family that was like taking care of us while we were there. When we would come back to the room at night, they would make us fresh bread and they would make us a small plate of hummus and a small plate of something else. Mm. And um like subhanallah, the barakah that was like in that food, we were six, seven grown men eating, you know, fresh bread and a little bit of hummus and another plate of stuff. But at the end of it, you just felt so full. Mm. Yeah. 
and um, that was it. That was a power bar in the morning, and then a little meal at night, and go to sleep. Did you lose weight at all? I had ten pounds, ten pounds when I came back, and I uh, I ended up jumping on the scale ten pounds down. So when when they talk about you know Gaza is going through this food crisis and people are hungry, you saw that firsthand yeah. that people were yeah. bas- barely scraping by. Yeah. Children were running to food trucks. And like I said, I felt guilty that. First of all, I'm like hiding power bars just because like I need to eat and stuff um, just to focus, to operate and do whatever. And, and then you come back at night and a, a local family is taking care of you and providing mm-hmm. you the food. Is, um, and I'm lucky. I mean, that was just a one week trip that I had to suffer this inconvenience with. And now I'm back to everything we have here where we're used to excess and you know, you go to Costco and you buy family size everything. You know, yeah. and over there they don't have anything. And and you know, as you're getting ready to leave, are you're how are you feeling at this time? You know, are you feeling excited? Are you feeling guilty? Yeah. What's going through your mind? Definitely a little bit of both. It was a it was a very bittersweet feeling um, leaving. You know, you you wanted to stay. Uh, you built camaraderie with the group. With well, I built camaraderie with the group of guys that I had met for the first time. We felt like a new family, and mm-hmm. you're every day you're waking up. Like the beauty about doing these mission trips is that everything you're doing, you're doing for the sole purpose of helping others with nothing in return. Mm. You know, it's I'm doing the same exact stuff that I do when I'm here at home, but when you go there, you're just like disconnected from bills and thinking about payments and you're just so focused on helping other people for the sake of God and Mm -hmm. it's a totally different feeling like I said I could have done anything there and I would have felt just so happy the fact that I was able to offer some type of assistance Mm -hmm. but at the same time you miss your life you know we're used to all this stuff here I I miss my wife I miss my kids I miss my family Mm -hmm. and so you want to go back you want to stay and you're torn and um Did you feel ever, did you feel guilty that you were leaving? Yeah. I mean, you come in, you show up as this medical aid from the States and um, you're suffering for such a short, limited time to what these people's lives are. Mm. Like I said, it was, it was, it was such, it was a little inconvenience that I didn't have as much food as I normally had for a week or, you know, I was inconvenienced by the fact that I couldn't shower for a week. Mm. But for every, I mean, even compared to the people that were living there, at least I had a mattress that I could sleep on. Mm. At least I had a shelter. You know, God forbid it would rain or snow or something like At least I was somewhere covered. Oh, was, it, was it cold or hot? Um, like? I mean, for us here in Detroit, it wasn't that cold. It was like low 50s. You know, I was walking around in a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, everyone's walking around in winter coats and stuff. And mm-hmm. at night it gets cold and fog when you talk and you can see your breath and stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, not having heat and um, when people... I want people to really understand the suffering that's happening. And I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine yourself and your family going through what these people are going through. Mm. The way that the Israeli army clears out certain areas is that they'll fly over a zone. You know, they've created a map where they've sectioned off Gaza to different zones. Mm. They'll fly over a zone and drop pamphlets. And they'll also, over the airways, over the cell phone towers and stuff, they'll send out Amber Alerts mm-hmm. saying zones one, two, and three, 
exit by tonight, so-and-so is happening. Mm. So you have to think, I want you to close your eyes and imagine you have a family. I have a family. I have a wife and three kids. I have to make a decision. Do I pack up and leave with my family? Leave basically with one suitcase. Because remember, there's no cars, no gasoline, no cars. You can't take anything mm. with you. Just what you can drag. Do I pick up my family and go with just the shirts on our back? Or do I stay and risk it? Do I stay and risk being a target? These are the terrible decisions that Palestinians have to live with every single day for the past hundred, even before, even, I don't even want to say hundred days, even before the hundred days, the airstrikes were happening, the sieges happening, all this stuff. It didn't start on October 7th. Yeah, it didn't start on October 7th. Mm. It escalated dramatically, but this is the life of the people of Gaza for the past 50, 60, 70 years. Mm. So when, when you see people living in tents, these are people that were productive members of society that had lives, that had jobs, that had social interactions with people, friends, families, and everyone's now been degraded to a tent, to a tent. Maybe they have blankets. Who knows if they were able to leave with a blanket? Mm. They don't know when their next meal is. They don't know. They don't, they don't know if they're going to be able to give their kids water when they're thirsty. They don't have access to clean water to shower. Even when you walk through the tent cities, let's say everyone decides to be organized, which they were, and they decide to take all of the trash and disposals and put them in one area. After a while, that area starts to overwhelm the entire tent city. Mm -hmm. So sanitation is now a major problem. You don't have garbage disposals taking things out. Mm -hmm. It's very degrading and unfortunate and sad how the Palestinian people have, have, have been pushed into this position. As you got ready to leave, you know, you've... Did you tell your family members that you're safe and that you're coming back or they had no idea? So cell phone service was spotty. Mm -hmm. And so um, basically at nighttime when I would get back to the route, the office, they basically cleared out the office and the uh, um, in the hospital for us to sleep in. Mm -hmm. And so there was a little Wi-Fi area close to there. So every night, basically, I would text them, hey, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, most days they would go that 12-hour, 24-hour stretch not hearing anything from me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, news is coming out that, okay, now strikes are getting closer to Nusset Hospital or, you know, they hit civilians 100 yards away from the hospital now. And so, mm. yeah, now everyone's wondering, well, is he there? Which hospital is he at? Where is he staying? So mm. um, I knew I was fine. I couldn't tell anyone else. Yeah. yeah. They were probably worried sick Oh, yeah, you. yeah. And then describe to me the moment that you got back. How did you feel? I didn't feel like at ease until I landed in the States. Mm. You know, even so you fly out of Egypt, you land in Frankfurt and then from Frankfurt to Detroit. I just, I didn't feel, I don't want to say like safe, but like it just didn't feel like home till I actually landed back mm. in Detroit. And um, you're... Mixed emotions, you know, it's like your heart is still in Gaza with all the people that are suffering. Um, mm. But like I said, you have kids here. You can't be sad all the time. You you want to have fun with your kids. You want to see your kids happy. Mm. You don't want to see your kids suffer at all as to compared to what you just saw back there. Mm. And, uh, you know, you want to get back to work. At the same time, you still want to decompress and recover and mm. kind of really process everything. Because that was a lot. Yeah. Like you went through and yeah. then you're going back to work. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, mixed emotions, and uh, my wife will tell you I'm very bad with emotions. I don't really know how to deal with them, so I just, just, mm. yeah. Did you ever feel, you know, you said that you had gone and seen some, some things that really stuck with you and choked you up. Do you 
do those things keep you up at night today? Definitely that first girl that I took care of, I will never forget her. Her name was Noor, and she made me cry. Um, this poor girl has her whole life ahead of her. She didn't do anything wrong to anyone. She's not involved in any military. She's not involved in any resistance. This poor girl is just a victim of circumstance, and she suffered, and she's just one, one out of the however many thousands of people that have either been killed or permanently disabled from what's happening. And these are the civilians that we're talking about. <clears throat> yeah, I think about her all the time. Mm. I think about her all the time. And, um, and I was so close to her and I wanted to help her, but I couldn't, you know, again, because of the blockade, because of things not being able to get in. And so, yeah, like it tears me apart that I was so close to try to do something and you know, I couldn't. You know, a lot of people here called you and your, your team a hero for for making it out there, leaving these comforts of your life. Do you feel like you achieved something and that you are a hero? Definitely not a hero. Definitely not. The heroes are the doctors that are currently in Gaza. All the doctors in Gaza right now are working for free. Nobody's making money. The Ministry of Health does not have money to be paying people. Everybody is working on a volunteer basis. Like I said, I went there for this short little seven-day trip to do whatever little bit I could to offer a helping hand in however uh, however way possible. But the real heroes are the people that are on the ground in Gaza living this day today. I mean, there there's people still going to work despite this. I met one of the scrub techs in surgery He's a gentleman my age. He lost his wife and his two kids. He's still coming to work every day, trying to help, you know, his, his people, his community as best he can. I mean, these are the heroes. These are the people that come to work with a smile on their face, willing and ready to help. They've given everything that they have, right? There's nothing left, but they still come and they give and they provide and they take care of others. These are the real heroes. We were just there as, you know, a short little trip. We, we were nothing. What did you bring back with you from Gaza? I brought back a new commitment to God. Um, I said having these near-death kind of exposures, experiences really remind you what's important. So I, I don't say this jokingly or soundbite. I feel like the people of Gaza gave me more than I could ever give them. You know, they showed me resilience. They showed me patience. They showed, they, I guess they brought to light all of the issues that, I guess they showed me how spoiled we are, like I said, you know, mm. and um, the fact that they're living with so little and they're still, they're still trying to carry on their lives. They're still smiling. They're still doing everything that they can to try to be as normal as possible. You know, kids have been out of school for how, however long and, mm. um, yeah, they, they gave me more than I could ever give them. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today. That's it for The Hard Truths, and I'll see you next time.